Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Coming to you from my home office in Los Angeles, it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Amy Sherman Palladino has worked on some of television's most beloved comedies. She started out as a staff writer on Roseanne back in the early 1990s. She went on to create the Gilmore Girls. Maybe you've heard of that one. These days, she's the creator of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. The show is about Midge Maisel and her dysfunctional family. Midge is a housewife who lives in 1950s New York. She finds out her husband is having an affair and decides to channel her pain into a stand-up comedy career. The show has won its fair share of awards, a Peabody, a Golden Globe, a truckload of Emmys. In fact, we just got word that the show is up for 20 Emmys this year. 20 to zero. So we figured now is a good time to replay my conversation with Amy Sherman Palladino from last year. One of Amy's superpowers, I think, is writing scenes with quick, punchy dialogue between characters. Here's an example. This is a clip from The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Midge and her manager, Susie, are at a TV studio. Susie's gotten Midge her first television appearance, and it's every comic stream breakthrough booking a telethon. So this is really happening. This is really happening. Tell him. You bet. You bring your sheet music? She's not a singer. I'm a comedian. Mrs. Maisel? You're down for five minutes at 2150. What? We do military time. 2150 is 9.50 at night. If you get confused, just add the number 12 to whatever time it is. And what's a what? Next. Follow me? Sure. I'm Sal. Nice to meet you. This is Mrs. Maisel, comedian. She does five minutes at 2150. Solo act. Any props? Nope. Stand on the X. Okay. Mic check. One, two. Next. Thank you. Oh, uh, okay. Wait, we've dragged ourselves down here at 8 o'clock in the morning and that's it? Record. I showered. Thank you for showering. We'll see you tomorrow. 1,600 hours. When's that? Wait, Sal. Things move faster in the television business. <laughs> Amy Sherman-Palladino, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to have you on the show. Oh, it's so lovely to be here. Oh, I'm, gl- I'm glad to hear that. Uh, uh-huh. I'm not 100% sure if it was sincere, but it's... It was It's as sincere as I can muster on the night before a table read. That's what you get. And now we're talking. What's the, <laughs> what's the table read tomorrow? Tomorrow we read the last episode of season three. Are you nervous about it because uh, things have gone poorly or is simply because uh, what you have written is now going to come alive and you could potentially be embarrassed? I don't know that nervous is the uh, exact word. It's a very big show. Our last two shows this season are very big. So it's just a little it's a little daunting. There'll be a lot of uh, Valium involved, but I think it's all <laughs> going to be fine. Well, I I am uh, optimistic about it on your behalf. Um, oh, good. And I am glad to have you on the show. Hmm. Uh, you grew up in uh, show business in a very interesting way. Your your father was a comic and your mother a dancer. Yes. And you kind of grew up to be a comedy dancer. Yes. <laughs> like, I was just a hilarious ballerina. It was just... <laughs> Nothing but comedy every time I put toe shoes on. But I mean, it truly is like you really split the difference. By the time you were done with high school, you were auditioning for dance parts and writing comedy scripts. So was that always what your expectation of what your life would be? No, I was I was supposed to be a dancer. And, and my mother is still waiting for a, a return on her investment of all those toe shoes, which she she hasn't seen yet. But um, I was not going to be a writer. I had no intention of being a writer. 
And then, uh, and then I got uh, in an improv group, school, class, something, and I met a girl, and we were bored and out of work and sat around eating ding-dongs and drinking tea, and we wrote a couple of spec scripts just basically for the hell of it, and, uh, and that got us on Roseanne. And when I got Roseanne, I was not sure I wanted to do it because I was a dancer. I didn't go to an office and nine to five. What What is that craziness? That's mental. You know, people, it was a room full of men in jeans and very pristine white sneakers and button-up shirts. And I'm like, this is not, this is completely not my, my world. Uh, and yet it was apparently very uh, fortunate that I made that turn because I, I get to eat now, which I didn't get to do when I was uh, young and danced. So did you have what it took to be a dancer, especially a ballet dancer? Like one of the weird things about being a ballet dancer is you can have all of the uh, commitment in the world and you can even have all the skill in the world and still be wrong for it because you're like calf is the wrong shape or something. I'm not an expert. Well, uh, you, no, you sound, you apparently you're an expert on caps, which is all you really need to be. <laughs> um, you know, when I was in ballet, I was always, I always felt like my body was not the correct ballet body. I was a short waist. I was a jumper and a turner, but I didn't have like the that elegant, like bourrees drew me crazy because like anything that was like fluttery and light, I wanted to kill myself. I liked, I liked what the guys did. I liked like the strong stuff. And I went to school in, you know, my school in LA was a, a school that like Heather Watts, who was a prima ballerina in uh, uh, New York City Ballet, like came out of that school. Like it was a very serious ballet school. And every year Joffrey would come down and they would hold auditions for uh, their summer program. And like two or three years in a row, they'd be like, you know what, next year, next year. And like by the third time I heard next year, I'm like, you know what, (laughs) I'm going to add some tap and some jazz to this and I'm going to find it. Because it was it was clear to me that ballet while I loved it and I loved being on point, which is insane because, you know, it's it's just horrible for your feet and completely unnatural. But it's it's just a very fun. It's fun. It's just fun. It's it's otherworldly. It's a weird superpower when you can get up on your toe and turn it's and balance and hold. It's it's um it's it's a really freeing sort of interesting way to sort of grow up. And I I now like I, I proselytize to all of my friends who have children because I really believe every kid should go to ballet class for until they're 10. And then if they want to quit, let them quit. But it gives you such an amazing sense of your body and like who you are, especially girls because your body gets so weird and everything changes and it's strange. But like just to have sort of like a balanced sense of yourself and that sort of strength and, you know, ballet dancers are a little less like embarrassed about their their bodies because, you know, they smell bad all the time and you're always like hanging out with like sweat all over you and you're just like with each other. Like, you know, when you're doing partnering some guy's got his hand up your crotch just what it is because that's how you're balancing it's just a weird it's like you sort of lose a little bit of that prudishness about oh my body you know and so this and look at that it's like it's sort of sort of it's sort of like a it's it's a creature it's like this other creature and i think that dance to me i love working with dancers more than anything in the world we use dancers a lot uh, on our shows because they they're disciplined they're focused they 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 you know they get paid nothing if you give them a sandwich, they're happy. So they're like, they get paid absolutely nothing. And the fact that that 
uh, it's it's an art form just purely for the enjoyment of the art form as opposed to any sort of like, I'm going to be this famous ballerina and make a billion dollars. Like, it doesn't work that way. So, you know, one one in a million people, there's one Barishnikov. That's it. You know, it's like, it's like, it's it's not it's not one of those art forms that you're you're you go into for the the commerce of it or the I'm going to be world famous. You really go into it for the love and the art of it. And there's something really great about that. And I I look back on those days quite, quite fondly, especially when I look in a mirror now and I see what I look like. I just didn't appreciate it. What kind of comic was your dad? You grew up in the Los Angeles area. Was he working the road or was he writing or what? Well, my dad, um, when I was young, was he? You know, he started in the Catskills, as every every Jew has to, and he was very much in that sort of that Shucky Green, um, Jackie Mason um, sort of group of comics, and he toured a lot. He toured with Dinah Washington. He toured with um, Johnny Mathis and Jose Feliciano. And then when we moved out to uh, L.A. or they moved out to L.A. and then they had me there, which I've never, ever forgiven them for because, like, at least get it on the birth certificate that I was East Coast. I was very it's – a, it's a thing. Um, they – he was – he did a lot of work for, like, Bob, the Bobby Darren show or the Joey Bishop show. Anything with, like, a name in a show. He was sort of a variety writer for a long time. Anything that had to do with jokes and comedy. And, and then he – the last, I don't know, 40 years of his life, he did uh, – uh, cruises. He did was comedy cruises. He was he was Mr. Saturday Night, and he would go on these cruises, and he was like Bono halfway through because everyone was like two hundred years old, and they loved him. And he would go on the cruises, and he would talk about. He, my dad was a riffer. He was a very stream of conscious kind of guy. You know, he would he he didn't work blue, which is why they loved him. But he could just get on a boat and talk about what was ridiculous on the boat and the people that they met and the and and because of that, everybody sort of felt like the show was sort of special to them. And he was just really successful at that till till basically till he was too old to uh, you know do it anymore. And it was great because my mom went with him and they toured all over the world and. You know, it was he. My father never ever held a day job. He worked his entire life. He bought a house. He put me through uh, all of my ridiculous ballet school, which is you know, ballet is also not a cheap art form. It's it takes a lot of money because you you know you go through a pair of toe shoes you know in a in a a month or a couple of weeks. Sometimes it's a lot of cash flow to keep it going. Um, I you know, while he never became like a household name, he never ever did anything but comedy, and that's how he supported us and. That's that's very uh, uh, admirable and, and unusual, you know. My parents looked at it differently. They were they were pissed, but I thought that's a great thing. If you never held a day job, then you made your money the way you were supposed to make your money. We have a clip of your dad doing stand up uh, in his capacity as the the king of the high seas. Oh Jesus! Um, on a, this uh, this is a clip from a cruise to Mexico on the celebrity Mercury. Okay. But I wanted to see Mazatlan, so I go out in the terminal, all I see are buses, 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 buses. All those buses, and they have no place to go. Now I know why I can't get a bus in New York. They're all in Cabo San Lucas. I got on one of the buses, the man took me to the Golden Zone, he took me to the El Cid Hotel, he took me to a beautiful church that was packed with passengers all praying they'd never have to come back to Mazatland again. (laughs) 
And then they brought us the Acapulco, which is Mazatlan spelled backwards. Acapulco, that's like a Kmart that's out of control. <laughs> the funny good, dude. He's he's selling them too. There's there was uh, I I don't think that there was anybody in that audience who wasn't who wasn't bowled over. You know what I mean? Oh no, my dad was. I'm telling you because he would go on these cruises and it was a, the greatest gig in the world because he would do. They had these they build these beautiful theaters on these boats. They're like you know 1500 seat theaters. It's ridiculous and they they have two shows and he would go on and he would do basically one night he would do two shows and that was it. That, that, that's how he made, and the rest of the time he hung out on the cruises and it would always happen about midway through the cruise. So the cruise would start and everyone's happy and feeling great. And two days in, the fathers especially start to realize they've been had and nothing is free like they thought it was and nothing's included like they thought it was. And the kids are starting to get weird and hang out in like hallways at night and the, everyone's sort of <laughs> squabbling and turning on each other. And then my dad would come on halfway through the cruise and all he would do was that and talk about how ridiculous the cruises were. And it was like it was like therapy. So everybody was like, yes, someone understands us. Somebody feels our pain. And like it would like literally alleviate the tension and I believe he saved marriages he saved people from throwing their children overboard I mean there was all sorts of things that that could have happened if the, if it continued down the road it was going it was it was a great great gig for him and he he was really great at it and he he was he loved doing it so you know there there you go I mean occasionally you know there's you get sick because everyone gets sick on those cruises because they're filthy but other than that it was a delightful experience how old were you when you and your writing partner got the job on Roseanne? I was 20, 23, 24. I was young. I was so young. And it was it was season three of Roseanne, right? Was your was your first year? My my first year was season three. I was there three, four, five, six. I uh, my Roseanne history is a little blurry at the edges, but that's kind of in. So is hers. So there you But I'm bump. I'll be here all night. Uh, it's that's kind of in between the most intense madness of Roseanne, right? Like the first and second season was when all of the people who, you know, had been installed were getting uninstalled. Yes. And later on was when things maybe production wise got a, got a little batty. What was it like working on that show? Well, season three especially was great. Uh, the, my first year. And was it four, season three and four? Those are the two like really really great years. Bob Myers was running the show, and he was a great showrunner. Like he was an old school showrunner. You know, he came up like my two dads and like old school sitcom. And you know, we never we didn't have a table. We sat in his office on uh, couches, and we each held our own pad and wrote our own notes. Like a writer's assistant didn't sit in there and type incessantly. Like, you know, it, it was a completely, it was very, very old. It was very Mary Tyler Moore. I mean, um, and, uh, uh, Dick, sorry, Dick Van Dyke. You know, like where you just sort of like sat around and kind of riffed and and it wasn't as, it didn't have a corporate feeling at all. It really felt like what my vision of a writer's room still is. Um, and because she had gone through all the madness of, breaking up with her husband and she was together with Tom and they sort of fired everybody and they'd sort of taken over the show. It was it was those two years especially were very sort of like great oasises because she was happy and she was very focused on her relationship. And she had also banned the studio and the network from this the set. So my first experience in a show 
there were no studio and network notes. I didn't I didn't know they could give notes. I had literally no idea because it was just very much the writers and then the writers with Roseanne or the writers with the actors. It was the way I, to me it should be. You know, like we would come in, we'd break our stories, we'd write our scripts, we'd do our table reads, we'd go back, we'd talk about it, we'd do our fixes and the next day. And it wasn't until I got off of Roseanne and I was on another show and I, I was there four years. So I, I left a, a supervising producer and I went on to another show and and I I was like, who are all these people sitting around this table and why are we listening to them? Like someone had to say to me, this is this is the network in the studio. And I'm like, so what? We have work to do. And like we have to, like we have to wait and get their notes. It was like a, a foreign concept to me that suddenly there was this layer between the writers and the actors. And and it was so basically Roseanne prepared me completely for what I'm doing and yet com- didn't prepare me at all for the actual business of 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 show because I didn't I grew, you know, I sort of grew up in a in a utopian writer's room <laughs> it was it was it was Xanadu. um and then seasons the, the the last two seasons that i was there bob left and then the staff started to get ridiculously big and she started to get more unhappy with tom and then things sort of shifted and and i when i left i, I was ready i was ready to go I want to play a scene from uh, one of my guest amy sherman paladino's episodes of roseanne back in the day um so in this episode, Becky, who's one of uh, Roseanne's daughters, has run away from home and she's staying with Aunt Jackie mm-hmm. and Darlene comes in to check on her, her sister. What did mom do that was so horrible? Everything. She wouldn't let me see Mark. Well, you saw him anyway. Well, I had to lie about it. You didn't lie. I lied. I covered for you and I got grounded and you don't even care. I'm sorry, Darlene, all right? No, you're getting off way too easy, Becky. Go home, Darlene. Look, Jackie is putting up with you. Mom and Dad are impossible. Mom and Jackie are fighting. Everybody's yelling at everybody else, and nobody's saying what they should be saying. Becky, you're a selfish, inconsiderate, spoiled little brat. Yeah. Those kids were really good. (laughs) Yeah. I really, I really agree. She was really good. But Lisey was great, too. They were just great, though. Everyone, I mean, one of the things about Roseanne is... The cast was sensational. Every single person on the show is extraordinarily good. And, you know, like, you you start with one of the most specific and powerful comic voices of her generation. Uh, You know, one that was, like, that, like, needed, that was needed... Uh, and important, and then you just add exceptionally great actors who are also really funny. Like yeah. any a- any time, you know, uh, you could be like, "Oh yeah," and what uh, number three on the call sheet is Laurie Metcalf. You know? Yeah, I know, I know. And Laurie was the kind of person, you know, what what I learned also on Roseanne is that comedy wasn't all was not about jokes, um, and and Roseanne didn't have a joke quota. You know, there was no mandate that we had to leave a scene on a joke. There was no mandate of how many jokes had to be on a page. It was all about people talking to each other. And Lori was somebody that you could give something to that the joke was not in the structure of the words, but you knew she how she was going to make it funny because she was just like that brilliant. And and that's that's another, you know, very strong lesson to learn that it's not always about... It's not always about bump bump. 
It's about, you know, what are they saying to each other? What's the situation? And really knowing who your characters are and what their voices are and what point of view they're going to come at because that's where the comedy is going to come. And those two girls were just great because they knew how to just play it. They were just so real. They were such real teenagers. You know, they drove you crazy (laughs) the way that teenagers were supposed to drive you crazy, but they really just were... They, I think that those were the two best teenage characters on television, almost comedy and drama ever, are, are, were, were Lucy and Sarah. There's so much fear and anger in Roseanne that you don't find in a lot of family sitcoms. Um, and, you know, it typically gets resolved. I mean, that's what a sitcom is for. Um, but... And, and I mean, I guess it must just come from Roseanne's voice a- as a comic, but like there is real dark feelings in that show that were so uncommon on, you know, even like the, you know, Norman Lear sitcoms uh, of the 70s. Like there's so many people getting in real fights and yeah. people really being freaked out about circumstances in their life, you know, economic circumstances and, and elsewhere um, that you that you don't get in, a, you know, you weren't getting in other even good sitcoms of the time. Well, the best comedy is drama. It's, and the best dramas are comedies. You know, Sopranos was one of the funniest shows on television. So I, I, I to me, like comedy and drama are simply one is less pages. <laughs> than the the other because it because it it really is like great comedy you know is going to be is going to be willing to go for those moments and go for the real moments that's where you're going to get the real funny but then you're going to really knock someone on the like to me that's great comedy and that's what great drama is too it's just it's a because it's about again the the mantra on Roseanne was make the big small make the small big it was that was the thing it wasn't about like you know a big situation. It was about the small thing that happens in life that throws people off kilter. And that's something that I have taken to heart for the rest of my uh, career because I think it's the most important thing. We'll wrap up with Amy Sherman Palladino after a quick break. Don't go anywhere. Amy will tell me about the big TV executive meeting where she pitched Gilmore Girls. But did you know it wasn't her first idea? The execs hated her first idea. More on that coming up. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Until recently, Edmund Hong says he didn't speak out against racism because he was scared. My parents told me not to speak up because they were scared. I'm tired of this. Listen now on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're replaying my conversation with Amy Sherman Palladino. It originally aired last year. She's the creator of The Gilmore Girls and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. This year, Maisel is up for a monumental 20 Emmy Awards. Let's get back into our conversation. I heard somewhere that when you sold uh, The Gilmore Girls, The Gilmore Girls was not the pitch that you had brought into the room intending to sell. Is that true? It wasn't even one of the first five pitches that I brought into the room. <laughs> it was literally the afterthought pitch because I had had a whole other pitch. I had optioned an article and I worked on it and then well, I had like a couple well, of back. What was the article about? 
it was actually a really great article. It was a, it was a, it was about a girl who was um, a Filipino girl. Her parents were very, very traditional, old country, and she was the first generation American kid born, and she was really smart, and she started a zine at like her 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 school, and she was not a traditional beauty. She was just like a really interesting, smart girl and like she was so admired at school and like her boyfriend was the handsome like captain of the football team she was just a very interesting individual and and she was but she had a big battle between the traditional role that her parents thought that she should be fulfilling as a girl in a filipino family and a and a very american born girl who wanted to be an american girl and it was a great it was a great, uh, great series, and they just uh, wanted to order lunch the whole time I was talking. So <laughs> apparently, I was the only one who thought it was great. And I mean, you were in there with the uh, that was like really working on and selling a really particular thing, yes. which was a relatively new phenomenon in television. Like, uh, you know, there had been a, there was original programming on cable, but not that much of it. Mm-hmm. And network television programs were still by and large designed to appeal to everyone. And the idea that you were making that this network was making programming uh, for, you know, uh, Minded younger women significantly uh, was a big deal at the time, and it sounds like they just heard, "Oh, it's a mom and a daughter who are uh, friends as much as they are mom and daughter," and we're like, "Yeah, that's that's a thing that makes sense with our thing." Yeah, it, th- that was literally the pitch. It was just it's a mom and daughter, and they're just more best friends than mom and dad. Like, okay, go write that. <laughs> and I walked out, and I turned to Gavin Pallone, who was my manager at the time, and I said, "I don't, I don't know what." that show is like it was a sentence and he goes well go find out <laughs> so like it's like well now you got to go home and figure it out because we just sold it so that's basically the way Gilmore was sold but you know what that's to be honest with you that's the way Bunheads came about and that's the way Maisel came about every time I've walked into a room with a really like plan it's it's never been the same as I'm just in a room shooting my mouth off as usual talking a mile a minute, um, wearing a hat that makes everybody nervous, and then <laughs> something I say sparks somebody who's huddled in a corner and peeks their head out for five seconds from behind their hands and go, go right that. Now, maybe they just want to get me out of the room, but it's like literally every single time I've, I've on all three of those shows, it's kind of all happened the same way. Gilmore Girls, I think, also has, carries like a very specific kind of television fantasy in a very unusual way like there were a whole you know uh i don't know if this is still the watchword at usa but for a long time usa was supposed to be the blue skies network right and it was like where were they (laughs) yeah and you know all the all the procedurals including the really great one you know monk is a great show um were all you know they had their they had their elements of conflict but the the goal was to give you an escapist experience and gilmore girls has some of those qualities especially in its setting you know what i mean like stars hollow yeah yeah absolutely it, it's in a it's in kind of a dream town mm-hmm. um which i mean like both like a, the kind of town you would like to live in and the kind of town that kind of shares qualities with a dream you know what i mean mm-hmm. like uh uh, but at the same time, there are a lot of 
weird edges in there in a way that those kinds of shows don't typically have. You know, usually they have like one edge, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm, I'm just... I don't know. I think it's cool that it was on TV for so long. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I think it's amazing it was on TV for so long. Um, it was, you know, Gilmore was basically, it was based on a tragedy. It's a tragedy. It was the disillusion of a family. It was a a girl who rejected everything that her parents stood for. And even to the very end of Gilmore Girls, that was rift was never healed. It It was... It's what drove the narrative of Gilmore Girls was alienation and and pain. You know, I mean, Emily only got a relationship with her granddaughter out, out of blackmail, you know, and 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 only got her daughter back into her life via blackmail. It's it's that is the basis of Gilmore Girls. It's just that they happen to live in this very cute, quirky town that was fun and and because the point of the whole thing was to me like if the family you have doesn't work out go out and create a family that does and that's what you know that's what Lorelai did she found this place that she felt like family and that's how her family and her mind would relate to each other because her family did not do that for her and and so i think that the rough edges just come from the fact that there that this whole thing is based on People that were very hurtful to each other on all sides. Yay! <laughs> da, 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 da. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like I feel like the difference between the difference between Gilmore being a sitcom and being a drama, besides the number of pages. I mean, I'm sure that you could write a drama's worth of pages for a sitcom script, um, being who you are. That being your superpower. Um, <laughs> but uh, one of the big differences is like. All sitcoms are based on a family uh, that is, you know, made unresolved and then resolves. Like there is something that uh, creates a, 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 a disjuncture in the family and then the narrative of the show and the relationships uh, come back together at the end. Like, you know, whether it's a literal family or whether it's, you know, the people who know your name at the bar. Right. Right. And. Gilmore Girls, what's special about it, I think, is that it has it, it has that kind of classic uh, sitcoms ersatz family, right? It's it's uh, Lauren Graham's character and her daughter and her best friend and her friend down at the diner and uh, depending on the season, the uh, person she's having a romance with. Um, but it's also... <laughs> It's also the like one of the realities of that family is that her family is fundamentally broken, completely broken. Yeah, and it, it, absolutely completely broken, and and doesn't understand each other at all. Yeah, <laughs> they literally they 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 had seven years of talking to each other, and they still didn't understand each other. Like they just did not. She did not understand her her mother, and her mother just did not understand her daughter, and that. And then eventually, like, Rory was sort of stuck in the middle because she she wanted to, you know, her mother was her best friend. And she wanted a relationship with her grandmother. But it's like, how do you pick sides? It's it's it was a war. It was an emotional war. And the the interesting thing about Gilmore Girls, and I will say the one I've always given them credit for this. The one really good note in my entire career that I've gotten was when I wrote the pilot initially or when I pitched the pilot initially, I didn't pitch it. I pitched it up to 
the uh, first Friday night dinner. And, I, and, and to me, episode one was that Friday night dinner. And uh, Suzanne Daniels said to me, boy, I'd really like to see that Friday night dinner. And I'm like, all right. You know, I didn't know. I came from a half hour. I'm like, it's just more pages, right? Okay, I'll just eat them. And literally, it was the Friday night dinner and the battleground and setting the battle lines in that house, that that was going to be the house where war took place, that I believe got it on the air and made the show. I think without that scene, it would have been lighter and fluffy and it would not have had the weight of, oh, these people are really going to do battle with each other. <laughs> There's going to be, there there will be blood. Um, and that was a great, it was a, it was a great note. And I will, I will, my hat's off to Suzanne for, for making me do it. Let's talk a little bit about Mrs. Maisel. I read somewhere, and this may or may not be true, that uh, you know, you obviously have collaborators in writing the show, including your husband, who has been a creative partner and business partner with you for quite a long time. But but I read that you personally wrote her stand-up. Is that actually true? Well, we write her stand I mean, Dan and I, if it's Dan's script, he'll write it. If it's my script, I'll write it. But we always write her stand-up because her stand-up comes from story. That's how it was conceived because um, we had to decide what, you know, I had to decide what kind of comic she was going to be. And my father was a observation. I mean, you saw that he was a ranter. He was a, he was a stream of conscious kind of guy. You know, he, the guys, the people that I admire, the Mel Brooks, so that they, 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 they just blathered funny. <laughs> and that was the kind of comedy that I loved and the kind of comedy that I thought if you if you take an actress who wasn't a comic, you got to give her a way into the character that she's going to be able to understand because it's a whole different muscle being a stand-up comic. It's, it's, a, it's a very different way of thinking and creating your, your voice and I needed to give an actress a, a way to get in there that she could understand and I thought, well, you give her, make sure that every act she has is grounded in something that's happening in the episode. So she's basically staying on story. And because of that, it just, it comes, it has to, because it comes from from the character, it comes from the story, that's something that we can do. You know, I, I don't write but bump bump jokes. Um, we've got some very, very good road comics who come in and help us, especially with, because we have so much comedy in it, we have so many stand-up routines. And they help punch up and, and, and things like that, you know, so they're, they're involved in the whole process. I'm not trying to diminish their, their accomplishments or, or because they're very important to me and if they leave me, I'll kill them. But, um, but the, the crux of what her comedy has to be, it's, it's intertwined with what we're writing anyhow. Were you worried that you would get it wrong somehow? I mean, like, I remember when Studio 60 was on TV how mad every 
sketch and improv friend I had uh, was <laughs> about the sketches on that show that they had decided to show. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, actually. We were very concerned because because the world is it's very specific. And, I, and it's a hard world to show people. When you're in a club, um, you think like, God, there's so many like weird people here and interesting relationships and it would be such a but the thing about comedy and comedy clubs is they're they're very sad places they're not they're not inherently funny places because most good comedy comes from pain and and unhappiness and a lot of comics are not um happy pappy campers off stage that's why they're funny on stage so there's a lot of like darkness to a comedy club that i think when people think oh you do something in a comedy club, it's just going to be so funny and everyone's going to be sitting around making each other laugh. And it's like, but that's that was not my experience, A, with my father, his friends, or um, my friends who were stand-ups, or, you know, when I worked the, I worked in the, the comedy store for a while, not as a stand-up, just worked there. So it was very observational. Um, I didn't see this happy, funny, hilarity world. I saw a lot of dark souls <laughs> going through there. And... So, and it's a very, it's like, it's like they've been trying to crack, like, how to be a chef and show that on television. Like, I don't think that's a world that anybody has figured out how to show people. Um, So what we've tried to do is make sure that, because Midge is a complete novice to this. She has no, she had no knowledge of how to go about this. We sort of felt like as long as we are going through it with her, through her eyes, we, it's easier to sort of show people what the world is because she's experiencing it firsthand. And we're not saying, hey, here's the world fully formed. You know, she's learning how to be a comic. She's learning what it is to put an act together. She's learning what it is to bomb and 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 not succeed or be alone or have to make choices that she wouldn't have had to make if she was just living on the Upper West Side and going to the butcher shop every day. So because and also because we decided a long time ago, this is not you know, when I pitched this, I said this is not the story of a stand up comic. It's it's a story of a woman who hit who hits a point in her life and she discovers a whole other way to live her life. And the idea of taking a woman who was not a 1950s housewife who was dissatisfied with her life or staring out a window thinking there's something better out there, but a woman who really loved her life, who really thought, I've scored, this is great, um, having that ripped out from under her and then discovering this whole other way to live, that was a journey that I thought was worth taking. And because she blows, her life blows up, everybody's life around her blows up. So it was not about... Um, I'm just going to show you what it's like to be a stand-up comic. It's just an element of what this woman is. It's as much a buddy comedy with her and Susie. It's as much a family story with her and her family. It's much a it's much a starry-eyed cross lovers story with her and Joel, who really do love each other, but were sort of children and blind when they went into their marriage, and probably will never figure out how to be together, even though. At the end, they'll be in the pool like Desi and Lucy with the kids and, and, and the other spouses are walking around the background and they don't give a what they're doing. They're just dealing with each other. Like it, there's so many family dynamics going on there that to me, like the comedy is just one element of it. What have you learned in the course of making now three seasons uh, of this show about that character that you didn't that you didn't plan going in? That I'm going to die very soon. It's, it's all... <laughs> 
Go to Kim. Um, well, you learn how hard it is to do a, a period show just on just on a nuts and bolts level. It's really hard. Um, I've learned the value of if you don't have all the best people around you, you will fail no matter how good the script is when you're taking on something like this. Um, and I've learned that once you commit to a road, you can't veer off that road. So... Our road is this woman and her world expanding, expanding, expanding. We can't suddenly take her off that journey. We have to, like, we're all in. And at some point, somebody's going to put the brakes on and go, see ya. You know, par- parking pass is revoked. <laughs> it's, we're done. But it, it is an all-in commitment on this show. And, and it's, it's, it's full steam ahead on every episode. And... Um, We've got the actors who are willing to do it. We've got the crew that can shoot it. Um, and as long as everybody stays alive, it's 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 even if we fail, it doesn't matter because it's it's about just pushing that forward and and not being afraid or worried that we're not going to live up to whatever we've set up before. It's just about you got to keep going. You got to keep you know shark. You keep moving or you die. Amy, I'm so grateful to you for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was really nice to get to talk to you. It was lovely to talk to you too, sir. Amy Sherman Palladino from last year. You can watch every episode of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel right now on Amazon Prime. Hopefully sequentially, not simultaneously. Also, did Amy Sherman Palladino wear a fun hat to our interview? We'll never know. She was in New York. We were in Los Angeles. It's a mystery for the ages. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. You might have heard my children making noise upstairs. Jesus, our associate producer, recently went out on his first Pokemon walk in a long time. He caught two shiny Grimers and a monster called a Quillfish. Jesus was also kind enough to share some excess Pokemon with my children who are what I would call Pokemon-aged. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Our thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. I don't know if you know this, but bands can't tour right now. So uh, it's a perfect time to support the Go Team by uh, hitting up Bandcamp or wherever you like to buy music and buying one of their awesome, awesome records. You can also keep up with our show on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.